Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Uncharted Territory podcast. I'm here today with Dennis Walker. He's a writer, satirist, entrepreneur, a.k.a. the micro-trepreneur. Without Dennis, we might not be here today. You posted this video with three tips on like how to boost your journalism life. And yeah, I was already thinking about doing a podcast and we'd already spoken before. But yeah, that, that video really did hit a nerve with me. And I was like, yeah, I need to just fucking do this now. So thank you very much. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, Louis. Thanks for the invite. And I'm glad that video hit the nerve a little bit. It's something that has greatly benefited me in my own journey, launching the Micopreneur podcast. And at the end of the day, it's all about relationship building. That's what I get out of podcasts, relationship with the audience, relationship with the interview subjects. And that's boosted my career in a huge, almost immeasurable way to be able to sit down like we are now and to have these deeply nuanced and engaging dialogues and discourses, especially considering the backdrop and the context of social media where so many conversations that are happening are reduced to 40 characters or to messages back and forth. There's something really poetic and really valuable about being able to dive deeper and go beyond the surface, especially when we're talking about psychedelics. So kudos to you. Good on you. I'm glad that you're rolling with this project. Thanks. You're very gracious. But yeah, you're right. Like, I think Twitter has just reduced a lot of things to very simple debates. So one way around it is a podcast. And you, you were just in California, right? Comparing an event out there. Did that come from the podcast? Yeah, 100%. I was just in California and Los Angeles at the California Psychedelic Conference, which is the second iteration of this particular conference produced by the very influential Oakland Haife organization, who I have a lot of respect for. And that all came about this opportunity to MC this conference, as well as MCing various other conferences this year, directly from the podcast. And it's from relationship building. And this goes back to probably two and a half years ago where I started to hear the name Oakland Haifei and see Reggie Harris and Ian Bollinger, the co-founders and various other people associated with this organization and really resonating with what they were doing. It's very community driven. It's very mycelial level or underground as opposed to an overtly overproduced, overhyped sort of corporate type of event. You know, they did almost no, that's my dog. They did almost no promo for this event and they sold it out with only an Instagram post 48 hours before the event kicked off, you know? And that's really impressive to me that they've developed such a strong network that people want to be a part of it without having to be sold on this. So yeah, that opportunity came up through getting to meet Reggie and do a podcast with him a little over two years ago. And then he extended an invitation for me to come to one of the first conferences, if not the first conference he ran. I couldn't make that a follow-up invitation to last year, and now I go back to these events. This is my third Oakland Haifei produced event that I've been a part of. And there's a real strong core contingent of people involved with that particular organization where it feels like a family reunion is what I'll say. And that, you know, people who go to these conferences, which there are many, can probably feel that to different degrees. Like you see people and a lot of the same people you know, every six months or every year. And all of a sudden you have a really deep rapport with them and you start to spin off into other projects and conversations. So that's the value of a conference like that. And a hundred percent that that 
that opportunity came through the podcasting. I first came across you through the Lucid News stuff, that kind of satirical take on the Wonderland conference. And yeah, it gave me a couple belly laughs, man. And then I've seen a few of your posts, like the satire stuff, like the LSD mandate, which seemed to actually catch a few people. Like they really believed that, you know, this LSD had been approved by the FDA and the CDC had done a mandate on it, which obviously echoes certain COVID policies. So you've got some different hats. When do you decide to be serious? Because certainly for the last five minutes of this conversation, it's been pretty serious and I kind of prefer the satirical stuff, dude. Yeah. So with the satire, I think it's a really fun lens to unpack everything that's happening right now, because in many ways, truth has become stranger than fiction. If you just zoom out a little bit and you look at some of the insanity that's unfolding across our world, and certainly, you know, I'm from California, you being from England over there, we've seen a lot of this just kind of insanity and you could call it irreverence and almost an unbelievable uh, nature that's really permeated the the political sphere and talking about right politics and people's orientations politically business like it, especially when you throw psychedelics into the mix satire has become this really wonderful trojan horse for identifying and offering a lot of social critiques and things like that but keeping it really lighthearted and that's what so many people have kind of gotten gotten back to me with their feedback is like Maybe I developed slash found and connected with a really effective way of offering critique and, and not being too overbearing, because I think that we've come to this point with our culture where if you have a different ideology than someone, you know, there's this incentive, I think, that's built into social media specifically to be very aggressive with your critiques. But like that doesn't necessarily work. Like if somebody is aggressively shouting at me or, you know, critiquing me. Your impetus or your reaction is usually to like shut that person out and to go in your little echo chamber. But if you can find a way to offer critiques that actually like give some belly laughs, you know, like that piece for Lucid about um, that was the Wonderland conference. Like a lot of the executives from the Wonderland conference and Microdose who runs it, they thought it was hilarious. So it's like you're able to offer some critiques without being overbearing. And like, there, you know, and then that ties into the whole archetype of the court gesture of, you know, if the king punishes the jester, he can't do that because that means it might be true. So like you just allow this space for whatever that jester archetype is saying to, to be seen as sort of like, a, you know, its own measure of critique. And essentially that's what I'm doing. I mean, there was certainly like a lot of ammo at that conference, it seemed like a lot of material just on a plate. Have you ruffled any feathers? So far, has anyone really DM'd you or taken you aside and be like, you know, look, Dennis, you're a good guy and everything, but for fuck's sake, that one came pretty close to the bone type thing. Definitely. And, you know, I would say that I've had a lot of grace and a lot of respect from different parties who will recognize what I'm doing. And I always kind of fall on my sword, if you will, and just tell people like, this is improv satire, first off, like, it's not something that's often premeditated, I try to make one satirical piece a day. So a lot of times, like you're responding to current events. And I would say there's only been two or three occasions, maybe, where even then, it's usually someone I know, who will talk to me. And because I've developed that sort of rapport with people, and I have the background with the journalism I do and the podcast, etc., like people will just reach out to me. So I think at the end of the day, like a lot of the 
misconceptions or the disagreements that we have in the psychedelic space and beyond. It's just a matter of poor communication. Like how often do you see someone who has an issue with someone and they never really sit down face to face and talk about it? It's always like, you know, they interpreted something in a certain way or they felt personally attacked in a certain way. And like, that's really easy to stoke those embers and fan those flames with social media. And in fact, that's the agenda of a lot of bad actors is to try to drive apart different ideologies. And like, this is a, you know, well-studied uh, approach to how you can essentially uh, dismantle the social fabric, right? Or the infrastructure of a society. It's like, you can drive right and left further apart. So kind of my goal is to, you know, not camp myself with one ideology or like side with one person, but it's just to pick like really low hanging fruit, as you say, which a lot of times people will serve it up on a platter uh, to the point where like people from these companies that I often like to ridicule, you know, I'm quite skeptical of big business and big government and things like that. Now they're like sending me articles to, to satirize. So like one, which I saw that you posted that someone in the article actually sent it to me is about using ketamine in the workplace as like workplace retreats. So like, that's kind of my next target. It's a thing I'm sort of developing today where it's like, okay, this is clearly low hanging fruit for satire. Like this idea of a bunch of office mates getting together and like doing ketamine so they can boost their office performance. Like, there, you know, and and people will just send me stuff. They'll like they'll so, send me one line, be like, "Do a piece on gentrification." It's this word I thought of, where it's like instead of gentr gentrification, people who go on vacations and then gentrify a place because you go to Tulum or Negril or Ubud and you stay in the nicest green resorts and eat at the nicest restaurants. So that's kind of the genesis of some of the pieces. Or like, I have a buddy who's a therapist. And he's like, you should do one called the spiritual bypassing coach. Cause there's so many of these, you know, coaches and therapists who like essentially are offering their clients an opportunity to take psychedelics or whatever. But you look at some of the therapists and you're like, are you really qualified for this? You know, maybe you did like a, you know, two day workshop or something. And now you're rolling out ceremonies and there, there's just a lot of low hanging fruit. And like you yourself would be a wonderful satirist. You know, you seem to clearly identify some of these, uh, topics and, and hot button issues that are happening yeah i mean there's a big gap in the market and yeah as you say half of the stuff writes itself but that doesn't explain why you seem to strip down to your speedos in many of the, the <laughs> this content that you're posting that's a lot of fun i think the whole impetus behind that too is like i'm from a very conservative city i'm from san diego and like there are these very like regimented rules about how you behave in a lot of ways and having traveled a lot, I go over to Europe and you see like a different expression of masculinity. Like it's quite common in France, you know, in the south of France. And, uh, you know, I, I hang out with a lot of like Russians. I have a lot of former Soviet Union friends, things like that. And like they unironically wear Speedos. And I think part of it was I was in Brazil, as an example, earlier this year and staying at a hotel and they had these little Speedos that they get and you have to like, uh, well, you don't have to, but they have like these little packaged Speedos. And I shot a piece of content just kind of ridiculing this idea of like spiritual consumerism. I would launch fake products in my videos. I've done it a lot. And some of them have like spun out into like real projects. But I made one called Booty Zen, which is about like a spiritually, you know, zero waste, low carbon footprint Speedo that people wear. And it was fucking hilarious, dude. People loved it. I got a lot of feedback. And then I realized like, well, it doesn't hurt too that like in the thumbnail, it grabs a lot of attention. You know, there's sort of like a, 
when you're competing for people's attention on a timeline, something about like a really ridiculous looking person in a speedo doing something very strange. Um, it's very, it draws people in. So I just kept going with that theme and you may see me start selling booties and speedos soon. And since we're like dissecting and analyzing your, your choice of apparel, at the weekend, you're wearing like a kind of suit emblazoned with cannabis leaves. I thought you were the micropreneur. Yeah, well, that all just comes back to the fact that that's what I had on hand. I'm a big believer in using what you have. And, you know, everything I've done for the podcast, like from the production to sourcing the interviews to the logo to the website, et cetera, et cetera, has all been done in-house. And I have a lot of really zany costumes. Like, you know, I've traveled a lot. I have a lot of eclectic, unique personalities among my friend group. And I was in Thailand maybe three weeks ago walking down Koh San Road and I saw cannabis fabric. So I got that suit tailored for a hundred bucks. And the idea being like, I know that this is something, first of all, that's very resonant with my personality. You know, I want to live my life that way where you just show up in a unique outfit. But yeah, you're not the first person to critique me on that and to say that I should be having a mushroom suit. And it really just comes down to like, well, if I could get a tailored mushroom suit for a hundred bucks, I would gladly wear that. But the fact is I have a cannabis suit and it got the job done. Yeah, Thailand obviously like legalized weed, but I heard you can get these like mushroom omelets and stuff and like, mushroom smoothies and everywhere, but maybe it's still kind of illegal. So they're not quite rolling out the fabric, but yeah, you're a shroom guy though, right? Yeah, hundred percent. You're not a weed guy. I'm a cannabis, I'm a stoner too. I think uh, that, you know, I, I've talked about this quite a lot, but it's like, I saw legalization happen around me. I was living in San Francisco in 2007 and you know, I've been around cannabis lounges and entrepreneurs and all that, but it really never grabbed my attention as like a path I should take. And part of that, like legitimately or legally or whatever, you know, I've always, always been a stoner going back to high school, but I come from a quite conservative background. So the idea of like openly speaking about cannabis use or psychedelics was anathema to me. It was totally off the table. And like many of us, I was a fully closeted psychonaut and stoner for many years. And it really was only 2020 when everything started to come out a little bit, you know, there started to be a little bit more legitimacy, quote unquote, attached to psychedelics and to psilocybin, et cetera, with some of the Johns Hopkins studies going on with some of the media coming out that I finally felt a sense of permission to speak openly about it. Cause like I was a high school teacher. I taught multimedia, you know, I worked at a youth group as a church youth pastor for a year. That was kind of my background and community. It was inconceivable to publicly speak about a lot of these things. And I understand like a lot of people have been in the same position where sure, like maybe what benefit would it have done to me at that time to quote, come out of the psychedelic closet? The only thing it would have done is threatened my livelihood. You know, you can't be a high school teacher who's openly advocating for illicit substance use. But after I kind of phased out of that part of my life and decided, you know, it was never something that I was fully committed to doing as a career. It was a really unique opportunity that opened up and it served a great purpose in my life. But after I transitioned out of that sort of high school role working with youth, it became a lot more, you know, once I started running my own business, my production company, et cetera, I felt I had a lot more autonomy over being able to bridge these different parts of my life. And I think a lot of people should examine that critically and be like, if you're in a position right now where your employer or your community doesn't value your experiences and you have to shut them away 
maybe take a second look at that and think if that's really where you want to be. Yeah, sounds sounds like an incredible journey, dude. Like for me, come coming out of the the psychedelic closet, I say in inverted commas, I got invited to this retreat, and I was just intending to kind of write about the retreat and the other people. And the editor was just like, well, you need to include some of your own experience here. And then I did. And the article kind of blew up a little bit. And then no one, you know, no, nothing bad happened. A hundred percent. And I fully can relate with why people would not want to put that foot forward. You know, I was at South by Southwest this year and there was a panel with musicians, including Brandon Boyd of Incubus, you know, who's a uh, really a wonderful artist and a lot of us looked up to him and still do growing up. And apparently there was another artist who was invited to be on that panel who declined because they didn't want to publicly acknowledge their psychedelic use, even though it was known within their community that psychedelic use contributed to their creative process. It's a personal decision. And, you know, in a certain way, it does force the narrative to go there. Like in my particular circumstance, the friend group that I had specifically in California where I grew up, if I were to openly speak about a lot of psychedelics, which, you know, the the words, it, it kind of bubbles up, people find out, word gets around, then you become typecast as like the tripper or the psychedelic guy. And, you know, now people are starting to see, okay, maybe there's some value, you know, but once upon a time, it was like, you know, that was who you were, like that was your caricature, like you were the jock or you were the stoner or you were the psychonaut. And it's not the most flattering context for a lot of the scenarios I was in. Like, I'm sorry, but, you know, when I go to church with my family, if I'm home or whatever, and then people come up and start wanting to talk to me about psychedelics, it's like, I don't really, I'm not that comfortable sometimes, you know, being, that's the point of, of entree for a lot of the conversation. So I think that that's starting to change now, but there was a period of time where if you had publicly identified as a psychonaut or a stoner or whatever, then that's who you become in your community. And uh, I, part of what I'm trying to do is like get away from that stereotype and be like, yeah, like psychedelics and mushrooms particularly have played a huge role in shaping my personality, but I don't need to be this cartoonish caricature psychonaut stoner, you know, going and trying to be an ambassador for psychedelics to everyone. I want people to come to me because they're interested in the life I'm living. They're interested in the, you know, career success I've had. They're interested in my personality. I want those things to be a beacon for my psychedelic experience and not lead with this like overtly hippie, like everybody needs to do mushrooms. Like that's not really my bag, if you get what I'm saying. Sure, yeah, but you kind of suggested your psychedelic or mushroom use has had an impact on your personality. In in, in what sense? Like shedding some self-consciousness or anxiety or... Or what? Like, would you have been wearing Speedos and, you know, this yeah. cannabis suit? Had you not done like a heroic dose? Well, I think that's a great, that is such a good question, which is pretty cliche to say, but it is a question that hits at the heart of a lot of this, what we're doing fundamentally. And I suppose that I have always been eccentric. So it's one of those nature versus nurture things. And I think that psychedelics and heroic mushroom journeys really amplified my sense of comfort with that eccentricity. I think for a long time, I tried to like, keep it under wraps and marginalize that weirdness and eccentricity and to try to sort of fit into mainstream culture. And I suppose something I've often spoken about is like, I stayed a very straight and narrow track. You know, I got my diploma in four years. I got a professional job right out of college in the education industry. I got married quite young. So like all of my eccentricities, I kind of bottled them up and reserved them for the weekends or for certain events or whatever. 
And I think over the journey that I've had with psychedelics, it's brought me to a place of acceptance to be like, it's actually my weirdness and my uniqueness that I should be amplifying and leading with rather than trying to bottle it up and, you know, put on this very straight and narrow sort of personality. Like I want to lead with eccentric dress, you know, wearing robes and wearing things like that and wearing cannabis suits and, you know, I still want to be taken seriously to some degree. Actually, I don't really give a shit about that. But like, I, you know, I don't want to lead with people thinking that psychedelics are my whole personality because they're not, you know, I'm much broader than that. Love sports, love music, love traveling, et cetera, et cetera. That's where I want conversations to go. But uh, psychedelics have amplified my sense of eccentricity and my familiarity and comfort level with owning that weirdness. You know, dave hodges the the kind of yeah. pastor from the zide door church in absolutely Oakland. you're gonna have to wear some pretty ostentatious robes to take his throne dude yeah that was actually sewn by a member of his church there's a whole story behind that because i asked him the same question about what the deal with the robe is and part of it is to give him more ballast as the pastor of a mushroom church because part of the the charter of having a psychedelic church is you're supposed to have regalia or sort of ceremony that helps to clearly communicate that you're a church. So by him dressing in the robe, it actually helps to bolster his position as a psychedelic church and pastor. Yeah, I just gave my landlady's son, it was his 28th birthday yesterday, and I had these microdoses that I procured from the church these like hillbilly hillbilly mushrooms with with chamomile and yeah he's looking forward to taking them he was thinking maybe at this like lord of the rings orchestral concert he's going to he's used mushrooms before i said maybe you can just like meditate with one and see see what it's like you know at home before you start taking it when there's like orcs and smeagles and stuff running around yeah yeah i mean to each their own you know if that's what gets him going like i'm all for the smeagles for sure his mum was there and mentioned this like weird like hash cake trip she'd had at a festival like 40 years ago. So we were laughing about being stuck in this kind of like eye of sour on purgatory and, you know, just Smeagol bringing you like prison food. Yeah, man. I've, uh, I don't think I've had a trip like that, to be honest, but I can, you know, see how somebody might. You've never had a challenging trip. I've definitely had challenging trips, but I think from where I'm standing, like maybe I have a bit of a unique approach to this because my initial entree into the world of mushrooms and psychedelics was at quite a young age with quite a profound, cathartic, visionary experience in a high dose realm. So I feel like I've always had a uh, deep reverence and a respect, you know, for those experiences. And in that container, like any kind of challenge that comes up or, you know, uncomfortable, inconvenient truth, if you will. I feel like I'm able to hold those really well because of that initial voyage. You know, my well, my first time was a small dose and it was a perfect, what I call museum dose, like 1.7 grams, a half eighth in a public setting, but I was very prepared for it. At no point did it feel overwhelming. I, it was a euphoric experience. And then shortly after that, having a high dose visionary experience after having done my homework, you know, reading through Arrowhead forums, reading Food of the Gods by Terence McKenna, having conversations with people who had done these things and doing it very intentionally with silent darkness by myself, essentially saying, I'm ready to go, show me what's up, taking seven grams. And I had hieroglyphics streaming down the walls of my room, like very fully formed, translucent hieroglyphics. 
and was in an utterly captivated, cathartic state. And, you know, that's kind of my entry point. So from that point, I just remember feeling a very deep sense of knowing that there was some kind of very innate divine or deep intelligence that I was in a seance or communication with, which gets a little wonky, you know, to some people. And I, it took me a while to figure out what that meant, but that initial experience to have a full on visual experience, I think is quite uncommon. I feel like that was pivotal and seminal for me to have that very profound visionary experience that I can, after that, anything that came my way, I felt a sense of trust and a sort of relationship between me and whatever the mushroom experience is that gave me this sense of confidence that, okay, something uncomfortable comes up. Like that's just a, you know, one small part of this broader, more co comprehensive offering that has fallen into my lap with mushrooms. I can also say there can be a very, very challenging side to psychedelics when you try to integrate them at a high level into your life. And I know that from experience when you have these rosy colored glasses of, you know, we're going to bring down the system and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And then in reality, like people have been doing this forever. The sixties happened. And before that, you know, people have been doing psychedelics for a long time. And from where I'm standing, the world looks more authoritarian, more capitalist, more hierarchical, more controlled, more surveillance than ever before in history. So like, how do we reconcile that view? The fact that I just spent three months over in Asia and everything's automated and there's, you know, intense authoritarian governments and little nano apartments, you know, uh, in smart cities where every metric of you is a, a, a surveillance capitalized. How do you reconcile that worldview and the fact that that's happening so much and very, very powerful entrenched interests are investing in that? with this other utopian worldview of we're going to live in off-grid eco communities. Like I'm very, very skeptical of it. And I think that's where satire comes in. Yeah. So, I mean, three main takeaways from that, like the Alan Watts quote, you know, once you get the message, hang up the phone. Secondly, I'm not doing a 50 grand mushroom trip anytime soon personally, but I'll let you know if I do. And third, okay. I mean, considering the sermon you just gave, I'm curious to know if you are, after all, you know, thinking of starting like a mushroom church in Bali. Ha! No, I would not. I mean, my church I want to do is comedy and humor. I feel like that delivers on the money. It's, you know, it doesn't cost anything to make someone laugh a lot of the times. And it seems to work. And you're like, I'm also skeptical of group dynamics. And here's a clear example of that. Like, historically, this idea of like group ceremonies or whatever, they were done by members of the same tribe living in the same community, right? And they were, they had these like deeply shared rapports and cultural, shared cultural histories, identities. And having been through like multiple cycles of retreats and things like that, I've kind of seen where people come into almost like a cult-like dynamic and they get really attached to these things. And it doesn't always work out like over the long term so healthy. And again, I think it's good to be skeptical. And, you know, as far as hanging up the phone, the Alan Wattsisms, like there's the other side of that where like, what if I just really like doing mushrooms? And what if I like doing low doses too? You know, I love 1.7 grams, two grams at a Flaming Lips concert. You know, I love going to on stage, you know, and like this weekend I did stand-up comedy with a star-studded lineup in LA, like really world-class comedians who were on it. And I took one gram. That's the sweet spot. You know, I don't feel like, I need to take 20 grams to know that I'm going to have like the best fucking night of my life, literally. And I can do that whenever I want with the right curated group or whatever. 
and stay functional. And the last bit I'll, I'll mention of this is like, I went through a prolonged period of like searching. And I think to a degree when you're exploring or searching in high doses, like, what are you searching for? There comes a point where it's like, are you just going to keep like searching for stuff? Or are you going to go into a state like that, get very clear calls to action and then employ those in your life? And then, you know, the, there's a meme that perfectly summarizes this where it's like, why are all the people in the meditation space and a lot of, you know, psychedelic gurus and stuff, why are they so fucked up? Why do they need this sense of like power and whatever? Well, maybe all the enlightened people are at home eating chicken wings and laughing with their families. And like, for me, where I stack my chips, that's what I want to do. Like I hang out with my wife and play video games, take my dogs on walks, you know, uh, that's what I want to do. Go and hang out with the homies and drink some beers. This idea of like this ultra puritanical spiritual lifestyle that you have to go, you know, join the community. It's absolutely not my bag. You know, I'm trying to hang out with the people and, and, uh, and I enjoy what I do very much. Yeah. Well, quite, quite clearly, but you did take like this lion's mane supplement, um, tincture just, just before, we we came on air. Do you do that with the homies? Huge fan of Lion's Mane. I've got a ton of different tinctures. And I think that's another area that the psychedelic renaissance has largely missed is the fact that, okay, once you open up your mind to possibilities, what are you going to do now? And I think with mushrooms in particular, there's the saying that all mushrooms are magic. And I firmly believe that. Like psilocybin mushrooms are one piece of a much broader and more comprehensive framework of use cases. And Lion's Mane is huge for that. Like what are the ultimate goal of psychedelics, I think, is, is kind of like the question we need to be asking. And, you know, there's different points of interest there. And there's certainly more corporadelic points of interest about like, you want to sell people a mental health solution, you want to sell a solution to this. But for me, it's like, okay, uh, what are the socio environmental factors and environmental and social determinants that are causing a person to have PTSD or addiction, etc, in the first place. And like, for me, when I see something like psilocybin for lower back pain, it just misses the whole picture. Okay. And like, if it works for someone, great. You know, I won't take away from what these companies are trying to do. I may ridicule them a little bit, but like, if you build an intentional relationship with mushrooms, you start growing mushrooms, you build a community that's interested in mushrooms. Like you'll see a lot of your health, wealth opportunities in your life take off. And I've seen it time and again, you know, that's the premise of the podcast is like this idea of micropreneur that wealth and health are far more inclusive of some of the metrics and parameters that we currently assign to them. And like, for me, I'd way rather be attached to a community that's growing mushrooms together, working on projects together, making mushroom chocolate. Like, I'm so proud of this. This is a product that I made with my best friend, you know, making mushroom chocolate. There's lion's mane in it. There's cordyceps. And like, we started that from nothing. We went to the cacao forest negotiated for fat sacks of cacao. You know, we had to import some of this, you know, bulk cacao from a source, which was very highly vetted. And just that whole process to me, as part of wealth and health. It's not just like, I'm going to go buy this thing. It's going to make me healthier. Like, I think, you know, if you're growing mushrooms, if you're learning about mushrooms, you're going on forays in the forest, as I often do with friends and identifying mushrooms, it just creates this whole avenue and this whole lane for you to stay healthy. And what has helped me to me being in good relationship with my community, having good friends, you know, having social events, not being siloed up this idea that like, I'm going to be in my apartment in my high rise and I'm going to order lion's mane and it's going to keep me healthy. Like it might help your brain a little bit, but why not just like go join a community garden or start growing lion's mane, start, you know, learning, exercising your brain and, 
So, I, you know, I try to penetrate my life as much as possible from as many directions as possible with different mushroom projects, be it food, be it supporting people, recording the podcast, doing journalism, taking mushrooms, high dose psilocybin experiences, lion's mane from the homies at Bristol Fungarium. All these things I see as part of like my broader connection to my ecosystem and my community. And I think that's what mushrooms do. So the idea that like you can have a psychedelic experience in a vacuum and then go back to, you know, your life or whatever, and it's going to enhance, like, I don't think you're going to see the full spectrum of effects there personally. Yeah. I mean, the rising interest in, in mushrooms and psychedelics is definitely giving rise to like a wider understanding of the whole fungal kingdom. Right. And the mycelium network and the way maybe we're quite similar to fungi us humans. What's your favorite mushroom? Man. There's so many. I mean, I'm going to have to go with psilocybin mushrooms just in general, like probably a golden teacher, because I think that they're very widely available. And that was a lot of what my first experiences were with, you know, more exotic strains. I like white teacher, which is a strain that I was gifted by a wonderful mycologist who goes by mycoblast, who's been a formative influence on my cultivation. And then lion's mane is certainly one of my favorites in terms of its versatility, like to be able to use it, for example, a restaurant in town here where I live has lion's mane burritos, which is so awesome. You know, it's got the texture of, of crab or lobster. So you're talking about like a very delicious, exotic gourmet mushroom that also has brain benefits that are proven and it has a really healthy you know, appeal to it. It's very delicious, very healthy. So lion's mane, I'm a fan of cordyceps. I've been learning more about them, just kind of like the whole cordyceps ethos of how they function. And also I regularly take cordyceps. Turkey tail is a big one, uh, which has anti-cancer properties, which, you know, are very bold words to say that something has anti-cancer properties, but this has been proven, you know, and studied. And of course it's not super convenient if something you can grow and create yourself is anti-cancer. So maybe that's part of the reason why a lot of that, you know, public facing advertising, FDA approved language and things like that uh, don't get through to people because there's very powerful regulatory bodies maybe don't want you to know that you can grow or forage something that's gonna demonstrably be beneficial to you if you have a, a certain condition. So those are three right there. I love Rishi as another one. Somebody from Hamilton's Mushroom, shout out Hamilton, just gave me some agaricon, which is a new one for me. And quite frankly, you know, there are tens of thousands of medicinal mushrooms. And, you know, only a handful have been studied right now. Like, for example, where I live, there's over 50,000 known different types of fungi and only 2% have been identified. So like you're looking for nature's pharmacy, it's right there. And it's really the independent citizen scientists and the mycopreneurs who are forcing people to pay attention to a lot of this stuff, you know? And um, another example, Center for Mycoanalytics, shout out Ian Bollinger and, and partners over there up in the Bay Area, uh, William Padilla Brown, people like that. These are citizen scientists who are going out with DNA sequencing and barcodes, things like that, and putting a lot of these fungi on the map because no institutional sort of interest wants to fund it unless it's, you know, immediately profitable. So, I think that this ties into that whole idea of like mushrooms bringing health to a community is people going out and and going to bat for the mushrooms. And the final statement I'll make on this is like, you take care of your mushrooms, they will take care of you. It's something that many mycologists know. It's something that I employ in my life. Like I know if I take care of these things, if I share them with my community, if I work to cultivate them and learn about them, they're gonna hit me right back 
with all kinds of abundance and blessings. And for me, that's way more interesting than like, you know, trying to go be an evangelist for high dose ceremonies. And there's like a big movement at the moment. Well, you know, it's coming up. It's still kind of like sub subculture, like guerrilla gardening. Some folks are calling it botanarchy. Um, I did a story for Vice around this a few months ago. And I, I went to like a psychedelic society meeting in London. And they went to like this, this park in West London. And there were no psychedelics. They were just kind of, yeah, planting like turkey's tail and, and cordyceps and, and stuff. But yeah, folks in, in the US like, hold tight Jeff Patterson with his with his like water guns like full of like this spore liquid uh yeah on a mission to especially on on the west coast to yeah in a way it's like a bulwark against this whole corporadelic thing and whatever might come if if there is like an abundance of of magic mushrooms as well as these other medicinal mushrooms all around this is like a slogan associated with the cannabis movement but yeah maybe we can overgrow prohibition with with mushrooms as well i don't think you're ever going to see uh corporatized mushrooms you know i mean there will certainly there are plenty of brands out there we've seen in oregon these 3500 sessions which of course have generated a lot of chatter but like spores are all over the place, right? They're, you're breathing spores right now. And uh, there are plenty of committed citizen mycologists who are making sure that these fungal friends are traveling all over the planet. You know, there's wild mushrooms growing in hundreds of countries, over a hundred countries all over the place from Africa to Australia, to Europe, to California, you name it. There's psilocybes all over the place. And as more and more knowledge gets democratized and more of these community gatherings start happening, I just don't see it being profitable. Like you look at what's happened with cannabis and like, it's kind of a race to the bottom in a lot of ways. You know, somebody this weekend told me they saw a $25 pound of cannabis. We used to pay $25 a gram, you know, and this is like good, like humble County cannabis. And already, like I had another text over the weekend, or I had, you know, people who are involved in operations where I just don't understand how they're going to make money. If you try to come in from that angle, maybe a value added product, maybe if you make like a really killer sublingual strip or a mushroom chocolate that people love or whatever, but you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be so hard for any legitimate interest to compete against the vast and nebulous underground. But I'm, you know, I'm also not an authority on these subjects on macroeconomics and whatnot. So like, I could be totally wrong. I just want to say that like, uh, one thing mushrooms have taught me is not to hold so strongly to so many of my ideologies and positionings. Like it's one of the things I think is quite ironic about the psychedelic space right now is people who have such strong views on things where in my reality, like my psychedelic experiences have taught me to be adaptable and malleable. And like, yeah, there's certain principles and pillars that you want to be rooted to. But, you know, I, I'm not that strongly attached to a lot of these things. I consider myself try, kind of like a traveler. You know, I like to travel through things and observe with a curious detachment. And I think that's my role in the community is not to sell people on a vision or whatever. You know, like, yeah, I'll share my experience. I'm unabashedly pro-mushroom. I think more people should grow mushrooms. But like at the end of the day, I think my real contribution is as a social commentator and a satirist. And that really comes down to like, you see something, you make a unique observation about it that's informed by your particular lens that you harbor. And then you move on, you know, I, I don't get stuck. This idea of like arguing on Twitter about stuff makes zero sense to me. Like, I don't even want to prove someone wrong. Like what, what little gratification do I get 
out of like one-upping someone in a Twitter thread. So that's just kind of how I approach it, you know, with a sort of a lens. And like, as far as the humor and all that, it's really, it's spon it's spontaneous, it's improv. I'm going to get off of this call whenever we finish and make a piece. And I challenge myself, I say, you have one hour to make a satire piece. And I know that, you know, taking that sort of improv lens, it means that some pieces are going to miss the mark. And those have been some of the times when people have been like, what were you trying to say? But I also know that the better you get at it, you know, the more you do it, the more you're observing, the odds are in your favor. The deck is stacked in your favor. And if if I know that, like, I'm going to put out a hundred pieces of social commentary or satirical videos in a year, like 70 or 80 of those are probably going to hit. And out of those, you only need 10 to really hit. And out of those, if three of them go viral and, you know, get a lot of attention and all that, like, all of a sudden you're a viral satirist and people are following your work. So that's kind of, it's sort of like cast a wide net, do it a lot, get better at it. And, and I really love doing it. You know, I love looking like an idiot. I'm really good at looking like an idiot. Yeah, I would too. I mean, as we mentioned earlier, there was definitely like, yeah, the folks were like cool, screaming out for some comic relief. And I guess you've opened the door now and some funnier people are going to, you know, follow, follow you and take your spots. You know what? Imitation is the greatest form of flattery. And I've received a little bit about that. And like, I'm all for it. And my take is to just keep moving forward. And I'm not really too concerned about what other people are doing. You know, I think there inevitably is going to be someone who comes along that's funnier and that, you know, challenges me for, for this spot I've earned or whatever. And that's natural. That's how it works. Like, you know, I, I'm just going to keep doing my thing. And I also really like being weird, as I mentioned earlier. And I think the my particular experience with psychedelics has amplified my my comfort level with being weird because it's something that marginally concerns me about the direction of the psychedelic space is just how unweird it's getting. Like it's being sanitized and sterilized in many ways and and framed as this very like corporate friendly sort of marketable package. And I fully understand that there's a lot of business interests and a lot of people who have an interest in this. I'm like, I like making money too. I'm not like anti-money, anti-opportunity, but I think there needs to be at least a few people who keep psychedelics weird, you know, like, you know, I'm a fan of people like Hunter S. Thompson or Ter Terrence McKenna. Some of the, they were very far outside the norm and expressing really unique ideas, but they were able to integrate that into sort of a mainstream, if you will, uh, speaking tour where they were doing talks and you know conferences and selling books and things like that, major publishing houses. So my my goal is not to be like the biggest, most recognized. It's to be like a really consistent, really bankable sort of cult following that I'm trying to build. And I think I've been successful at it so far. I've firmly entrenched myself as like a jester and that's my role. And the jester's role is to critique power structures, you know, among other things. So that's something I want to do. And I want to be educated too, because the other, you know, the other bit I'll mention is like, I'm not that attached to this whole psychedelic community. Like I kind of got pushed into it without even trying to and, you know, I, I'm about relational agency and building one-on-one -on -one connections like we're doing now, I'm like going to lunch with people. I'm like, if I have an issue with someone, my first thing would be like, hey, can I not publicly address this? Can I like reach out to them privately? Like, what, what am I trying to do? You know, and I've been able to, as I say, I seek to avoid imperial entanglements. It's a uh, quote from Han Solo, I think, in Star Wars. And like, what good does that do me? Like, 
I was in the airport yesterday. I was in like three airports yesterday. I fucking hate going through the whole security pat down, all this and that. What good does it do to me to bark at the security officer? You know, like, I don't know if that's an appropriate analogy, but that's how I approach things. Just like, okay, I don't like this, but like, it's not my battle. You know, this is the way they're doing things. And, and I, I just hope that, you know, you can't keep everybody happy all the time. This is a firm mantra that I hold on to as well from my days of teaching high school. But like, what's our real goal here as a psychedelic community is to try to help people. Well, then go out and help people. Like if you're, you know, if, if I'm sitting around thinking about like how I'm going to bring this other organization down, it's like, what do you got going on? Like, what are you doing right now? And like, for me right now, after this, I'm going to go make a video and then I'm going to go out and take my dog for another walk. Like that's my life. My life is not, you know, on a timeline or on social media. And, and, uh, you know, I'm prepared to keep doing pretty wild satire and staying pretty far out there. And uh, if you think you've seen something so far, you know, I've, I've made satire on the border between Israel and Palestine. That was very pronounced and very, you know, from Banksy's hotel and refugee camps. I've done satire on the border of North Korea and South Korea. Like I've gotten really out there. I've done it in Rio de Janeiro, done it, you know, I've critiqued in their own parties, venture funds that we've gone on to become friends after I just completely spoofed and lampooned them from the inside of their own party. And like, I've done this with, you know, lots of people, like I've, I've spoofed Dave Hodges, you know, I've spoofed a lot. And then we're friends in a lot of the cases because I'm not, my goal is not to like bring people down or even like some self-serving objective that like, I want to critique them. It's more like, Ooh, this is a current trending issue. I want to respond to it. I want to be funny. I want to, you know, offer my observation, but like, you'll never catch me hanging on to just like constantly trying to bring another person down. Like I'd rather build up my immediate community and continue with that. For sure. I hear you. I hear you, dude. As do I, as do I. So yeah, I think we've come come to a pretty natural conclusion. We've got like two minutes of the second Zoom call left. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I'm just super appreciative of you bringing me on here. And like, I'm still new to the whole idea of like comedy. I think like some people expect me to like, just make a joke on the spot, you know? And yeah, you haven't uh, made any jokes, dude. Like, I think I've, well, made I've, you, I've made you laugh more times than you've made me laugh. What's that all about? Man, I'm I'm just like I have to be in the right headspace for it. But I'll I'll offer a joke here. Is like, do you know the strain of mushrooms albino penis envy? Are you familiar? Uh, vaguely, I've heard okay. of them separately. Well, why do they call them albino penis envy? Do you have any idea, Louis? Um, I don't know. Someone saw someone's penis and felt like their own had some inadequacies. Well, that's nearly it, but it's because nobody would believe it if they called it white penis envy. Bing, bong, boom. Oh. That one got a good laugh at the conference. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm here for it, dude. I, another thing I like to riff on is microdosing, dude. Like to me, the whole idea of microdosing is kind of insane. It's like, how do we manage to take this utterly transformative, profound experience and dilute it down into a multivitamin that people take and they can be just like, a little bit better at their shitty job or like, you know, so of course I'm also friends with a lot of microdosing company owners and stuff like that. And we riff back and forth, but that's one of my primary targets is like, you know, I often, I take a whole bunch of microdoses, you know, instead of just one, like I take like eight or nine microdoses simultaneously. That's my stack. You know, they got the stamen stack is like psilocybin, lion's mane, and niacin. My stack is psilocybin, psilocybin, and psilocybin. That makes you three times more likely to disrupt the system. So that's 
that's my bit on it. But you know, it is, it is a funny thing. I'm doing stand-up comedy actually with Joel at his event, your friend from Tandava retreats. And like, I have material, but I just, I lean into these things, you know, where I'm not, I've probably done stand-up comedy like five or six times. And as far as satire, people are like, why are you good at satire? It's like, I don't know, deep alienation from society, anxiety, depression, things like that. These are trauma is a great thing to transmute into satire. You know, like I make satire based on stuff that gives me anxiety, thinking about the future of, you know, who knows what the future of the world looks like, but I know that I can make people laugh today and have a good time doing it. And I'm going to make a video right now about ketamine retreats in the workplace. All right. And we're out. We're out. Thanks a lot, man. That was dope. Cheers.